morning, City Light Church. My name is Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. And man, I just want to tell you guys, it, it feels awesome to be in the midst of the Christmas season. Um, I love the Christmas season. Uh, it's such a wonderful time for us to start to reflect, refocus, and celebrate what Jesus has done. And so, man, I'm, I'm excited for this season for, for me to be with you guys in that. Uh, last week, we kicked off our Advent series, and Advent, simply put, means arrival. And it's the arrival of a noble or an important person. And so, uh, during the Christmas season, we celebrate the Advent of of King Jesus, right? The coming, the arrival of King Jesus. And the, the church for about 2,000 years has, has been celebrating this. It's a, it's a tradition uh, for our family for the last 2,000 years. And so uh, we've been walking through uh, the value, some of the themes within Advent. And so last week was love, this week is hope, and then we'll do peace. And then leading up to our King's birthday, we'll do joy. And so, man, if you have a Bible, uh, I hope that you do. Uh, if you would open that up and follow along with me, uh, we're going to be in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Um, the book of Romans is a really important book because it's about the gospel. Uh, it's actually the most expansive explanation of the gospel in all of scripture. It's so explicit about what the gospel is and what the implications of the gospel are on our life. And so uh, the way the book starts out is the first three chapters uh, talks about um, basically our sinfulness and, and our desperate need for the gospel. And then it transitions in chapter three still for the next three chapters to talk about what God did in response to that. And the fact that God would send his son so that we might be God's people, that we might be saved from our sin. And, and then the next few chapters, six, seven, and eight, uh, they talk about the benefits of this salvation that we have have in Christ. And so 6 and 7 specifically uh, point out the fact that we're no longer ruled and reigned over by our sin, that we are no longer uh, captivated or enslaved by our sin. And, and then these benefits actually find their culmination in chapter 8, where chapter 8 says, man, the benefits of following Christ is that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we're no longer people in the flesh, but we're actually the people in the spirit. And we the, that are Christ are Christ's adopted children, uh, sons and daughters of the living God. And so that's that's how chapter eight starts out, man. It's all good news, right? Like nothing bad will ever happen to us, uh, right? No. We know the truth, right? Like, we, we know that's not a reality for the human experience. And so it's actually one of the things that I love most about this book, about the Bible, is that the Bible is not about a bunch of roses, lollipops, and rainbows, right? Like, that's not what it actually talks about. God understands real life. He understands what the human condition is. He understands, like, what it looks like for us to struggle. And so in his word, God answers the deeper questions of our soul. He answers the deeper questions of our soul as we walk through. So, for example, when you and I look out into the world, we can honestly say, man, there's something really messed up about it. We say there's something gone terribly wrong in the world. We can look out and we can, we can the first news article we come across, we can say, man, there's something wrong with this place. There's 65 million people in our world who are classified as refugees, that's 65 million people who are without their homes, displaced from their homes, searching for asylum. There are 153 million orphans in our world, 400,000 of them right here in this country alone. So that's 153 million kids going to bed every single night without the loving kiss and hug from a mother or a father. 153 million. 
one in four women and one in six men are sexually assaulted at some point in their lifetime. That's 25% of our women and 16% of our men at some point will be robbed of their dignity that is God-given. 25% and 16%. Mass shootings are a reality. Every day that we wake up, we wake up with the reality that four or more people in one incident will be either shot or killed. There's something messed up about this world. It's a hostile place. And that's just to name a few of the headlines, right? Every day, all of us struggle with something. We face some sort of struggle or pressure in this real life, and it's not easy. So so where do we go from here? Where, where do we find hope in the midst of all of these things? Because the answer is not rainbows and lollipops, is it? The people that Paul's talking to in the book of Romans are no different. You see, the disaster and devastation that sin has caused is not something that's new to our generation, actually. It's been going on since Genesis 3 and the fall of man. And so when he's talking to these people, they're wondering the same things that we're wondering. Where's the hope? Where do we go to for hope? Why are these things as they ought not be? And so the question I want to answer this morning is, is where do we find hope in the midst of all the chaos, the struggle, and the suffering? And so for that, I'd like to look at the source of the answers of our deepest soul questions that we have. We'll pick it up in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to the corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so my first point this morning is hope is found in future realities during present struggles. Hope is found in future realities during present struggles. And so as we look at this, we, we don't have to be told or explained to that the struggle's real, right? Like that, that life is not easy, it's difficult. In fact, that's what it means to be human, right? To live in a fallen world means that there is struggle, there's suffering, there's heartache. But Paul here, he's, he's saying, man, the present sufferings, the things that you're going through right here, right now, they don't even compare to what's coming. They don't even compare. The future glory that is to be revealed is far surpassing anything that we can face in this life. And so what he's saying is that hope can't be found and won't be found in our circumstances. It's actually found in the conclusion of our story with God. Uh, The hope is actually found in, in the future reality that we get to spend eternity with God himself. You see, we, we get to walk in glory with Jesus. We, we hope for our final salvation, not in our circumstances right here and now. So even if we're currently experiencing some sort of pain, struggle, trouble, we have a hope. Because we know what the future holds. We know the end of the game. 
So look at this. It's basically like this. So if we were to decide to, to play the 1994 National Championship football game on the screen right here, right? We know this game, right? So the Nebraska Cornhuskers were facing the Miami Hurricanes. And if we were to play this game, how many of you in the room would be like, oh, no, I don't know what's going to happen, right? Like, we all know what took place in that game. And, and even if we got to halftime, it was like, man, it's been a tough game. And, and Miami's up at halftime. Most of us in the room still aren't going to be like, oh, no. What's going to happen? No, because we already know, right, that the Huskers end up winning that game. They defeat them. They win the national title. And the reason why we're not worried is because we know what's going to happen at the end of the game, right? In the same way, as a follower of Jesus, you know the end of the game. You know the victory goes to God, that he's the winner. He's the one that prevails in the end. Verse 19 and 20 point to the reality that all of creation actually is longing for that same glory that we are. When Adam and Eve, the first two humans, sinned, they brought sin into the world, and it didn't only affect us, but it also infected all of creation as well. The phrase Paul uses here is that it was, the creation was subjected to futility. Futility carries a weight to it. When you say the word futility, it carries the weight of meaninglessness and, and vanity and emptiness. So, not, do, not only do we long for this glory to come, but the creation does too. Creation groans in agony. It says in verse 22, it says, it groans in the pain and hope of that future glory. Man, when I was listing those things, those struggles, uh, the few struggles in this world, I felt it, and I know that you felt an inner groaning, groaning right? Like you felt a cry in your heart that says, man, this stuff is messed up. It should not be this way. Why, oh Lord, please don't let this be true. Right? Like that's what's in our heart when we hear those things. And and what he's saying here is, man, the creation also longs for that as well. That it shouldn't be this way. And in, in Romans 8, is essentially communicating from God to us saying, yes, you're right. It's not the way it should be. It's not at all, but, but my child, I have something better for you. In fact, it's not just better, but it's inconceivably better and beyond anything that you're going through right now. Your present suffering does not compare to what I'm going to reveal in the future. Don't you see that? That's what our hope is. Our hope is found in a future reality. So how often do we sit and wonder, man, what's going to happen next, right? Like we sit and kind of worry about, like, I don't know what's going to happen next. And, and what he's saying is like, no, you know. You know exactly what's going to happen next. As the creation and we groan and grumble, we know that at some point, someday, the groaning will stop. It'll happen. Verse 23 says, we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What this is meaning is that we wait with expectancy for the physical material to match the spiritual, for the metaphysical to meet the physical and come together. We await for heaven to meet earth. And I think sometimes we have trouble understanding this concept because we have some sort of Hollywood view of what that next life looks like, right? Like, have you ever imagined it? So listen up. This is not what it's like. We are not going to be a group of angels with wings strapped to our back, hanging out on clouds, strumming the harps, okay? Like, that's, that's not going to be our reality. A, it doesn't sound very eventful, it doesn't sound fun, and honestly, it's not helpful at all, right? Like, it's not helpful. The Bible doesn't primarily anticipate heaven as a place that we go to, but an unhindered relationship with God. 
That's what it talks about. Jesus being born in the first advent, so that's what we're celebrating. In Christmas, that's what we're celebrating is the first advent. It culminated in Jesus dying on the cross and raising from the grave, right? But that was just the beginning of God's work in creation. That was just the beginning of his work of redemption because there's going to be a second advent. That's what we look forward to. This is, this is where God will come and complete all the work of creating a new heaven and a new earth. And so as we celebrate this Christmas, this, the first advent, the birth of our king, man, let us, let us not miss this as an opportunity to celebrate that there will be another advent, that our king will come again and he will make all things new. That's where our hope is in. We have a hope in the fact that things will be as they should be. Life unhindered with God forever because he loves us. Revelation 21, 1 through 5 says it this way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and the death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't it beautiful that we're not a bunch of naked animals, uh, angels sitting on a cloud playing harps? Like, this is a beautiful place. It's a restoration of all of creation and a glorification of God's people. Not just a recreation of the initial, but actually something far better than we've ever seen. Hope was lost in Adam's sin, but it's found in Jesus' redemptive work of restoring all of creation and us uh, being a part of that. So, okay, some of you in the room are like, okay, Mo, I get it. Got you. So present struggle, not where our hope is. Our hope is in future reality. Yes, amen, I get it. But what do I do right here, right now in my present struggle? Like where do I, how do I get my heart to align with that hope that's up there? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's look at verse 26. Uh, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows that it is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So my second point is, hope is found in present struggles through God's Spirit. Hope is found in present struggles through God's Spirit. So how do we get our hearts to that point? How do we get our hearts to say, okay, this is a struggle, this is not good, how do I get my heart to say, but I have a future hope in my present struggle? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God comes and dwells in us upon conversion. So our hope when we experience this problem, it, it finds its completion in leaning toward the Spirit, hearing from Him. He's the helper. Even after we've placed our faith in Jesus, aren't we fairly powerless to, to actually endure some of the struggles in life? Like we, we're so susceptible to hurt, pain and struggle and hardship in this life. And our, and our gracious Father doesn't come to us and say, you know what, just suck it up. Everything's going to be okay. Right? Like, he doesn't say that. Like, that's not what he says. He says, no, I'm going to send my Spirit to be with you, to be helpful to you. In fact, Jesus, even before he leaves, even before he dies, he said, it's better that I go so the Spirit might come. 
God's desire is to send his own spirit to come and help. And that word help in our text isn't just him lending a hand, a helpful hand, right? Like, that's not what that means. It means that he's bearing the burden. He's carrying the load in our struggle. He's empathizing with us. In verse 22, it says creation groans, right? And then 23, it says that we also groan. Well, guess what? In verse 26, it says the Holy Spirit of God also groans for the glory to be revealed, right? Like, he is with us. He is for us in that moment, and he intercedes with us to God. Because, man, when I go to pray, I don't know about you, but I know that when I pray, it's not always perfectly aligned with what God would want, right? Because I'm not even sure what the need is, much, much less know how to fix it. And so the Holy Spirit is there to intercede with us to God when we don't know what to pray. So it's kind of this funny thing, and I'm not sure what to think of it sometimes, but uh, I'm the DPG at any dinner party that I go to, uh, the designated prayer guy. So like, man, they're like, oh, we should pray. Hey, Mo, can you pray? It's like, yeah, I can pray. I do that. But like, it's like this weird thing as if I have some sort of special relationship with God where he hears me better than other people, which is not true unless you're the Torgerson family. They think that. But all that to say, it's kind of this weird thing. And so it's funny to me because like, I know that when, man, when I first came to faith in Jesus, I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know what to say. In fact, I remember saying things that were probably really inappropriate to approach the throne of God, right? Like, I didn't know what to say. It was uncomfortable. And man, you better not ask me to pray out loud in front of people. Like, no, don't do that. And and so I don't know if you're in the room and you feel the same way. You're like, man, half the time, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to pray. Well, man, this, this passage can comfort us, right? Like, if you're not confident in what you ought to say, man, this passage is saying is God's Spirit is helping make sense of all of those things. He's searching our hearts and communicating to God on our behalf what is actually in the longings of our hearts. Man, we can approach prayer. We can approach the throne of God in boldness because of that reality. Because the truth is, I mean, if even the most sincere and faithful regular prayer still won't align with what God wants. I mean, I know most of the time when I'm praying, I'm asking for the circumstances to change or for me to be taken out of them, not asking for God's will to be revealed, not asking for the heavens to meet the earth. I'm like, just take me out of this one, okay? Like, that's what we usually pray, but the Holy Spirit's like, man, I got you. I'm going to talk to God about the things that are of God and his will on your behalf. Man, isn't that good news? That's so, such good news for us that God would continue to do that for us. But not only that, the Holy Spirit comes in and he says, man, I'm going to help your heart too. I'm going to point you, if you come to me, I'm going to point you to God and his plan for the redemption of everything. The Spirit intercedes for us because he knows the perfect will of God and we don't. My oldest daughter struggles with fear and anxiety. And so what happens is uh, she gets something caught in her head. And before you know it, she just can't stop. Like her just wheels are turning. And and so the other night she attempted to go to bed. um, And and as she was attempting to go to bed, she came into our room. uh, And she was kind of like nervous and flustered and stuff. We're like, hey, babe, what's going on? And she's like, tornadoes. And I'm like, (laughs) I'm like, what? (laughs) Well, come to find out, she had been talking about tornadoes. They've been learning about it in class that week. And so I'm like, oh, okay, now now I get it. And so she's asking, she's like, man, I got to come to people who know what's going on, voices of wisdom, people who know the outcome possibly. So she comes to us and we say, we sit her down. We're like, okay, sweetie, A, it's wintertime. Tornadoes don't come to Nebraska during winter. 
I heard they hit Iowa, which is weird, but they don't do that in Nebraska. Um, and and uh, the tornadoes in Lincoln specifically, there hasn't been one in ages that has actually touched down the city. So, sweetie, don't worry. It'll be okay. Our house is fine. And, and, and so then we, we, we went and prayed with her, and then she went back to bed. But, like, man, we're not much different than that, right? Like, we, we, we struggle with some of those things, the, the unknown. It's, it's not much different in our adult life. We, we wonder, man, what if I lose my job? What if I lose my spouse? What, what if my kids don't turn out the way I hope they do? What if Scott Frost isn't what we think he is? Like, I'm just saying, we have these fears legitimately the next day. Like, come on. But on a serious note, though, we fear the unknown of the future just like my daughter does. However, what we have is an, an infinite source of wisdom that we get to go to who knows the end game and remind our hearts of the end game. And, and he will come to us and set us down and say, it'll be okay. And not will, will it only just be okay, but it's going to be far better, far more than we could ever imagine. See, like, isn't that good news? That the Holy Spirit in our imperfection is with us to petition the Lord. When our, our soul is, is at war within us, the Holy Spirit is at battle for us, right? He is with us in and through us in great power and majesty. He's going to say, man, I'm going to get you to the finish line. And, and back in verse 11, and still in chapter 8, it says this, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Listen, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you if you're a follower of Jesus. Like, do you get that? Like, the Holy Spirit of God, the God of the universe comes to make his home in you. That's the power, the resurrection power in you. Do you believe that? No, I don't think you do. So listen up. Real quick, we, theologically speaking, would say, yes, amen, I get it, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but we don't believe that. We have to be a people that starts to embrace that because we are a people with a greater hope than anything we could ever imagine, and the Holy Spirit of God dwells in us to continue to confirm that and say, you are children of the living God. You've got nothing to lose. So when you're struggling, when things get difficult, we'll, we're held secure by His Spirit, he will remind us of our adoption and of our eternal destiny. What amazing security that we have. There's no other hope that can sustain us, right? No more money, not more power, not more respect from others, not good relationships or good behavior. The only sustaining hope that can ever be ours is through the finished work of Jesus and his redemption by God's will. That's it. Let's look at our last verses. Pick it up in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So my, my third point this morning is hope is found in God's will already being accomplished. Hope is found in God's will already being accomplished. So, so what verse 28 doesn't say is everything is good. He doesn't just write it off and say everything is good. No, what it says is that God is working everything for the good of those who love him. 
So there's no performance. There's no doing enough good things. There's no trading good deeds for God's good realities. Like there's, there's no thoughtful effort on our part to try to manufacture and manhandle life to be good. He says that he works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So, so we have to ask the question, though, like how can God make such a bold statement? Right? Like, how can he make such a bold promise to us? And then what is his purpose in the first place? Well, the next two verses explain that pretty clearly. Paul uses five terms here uh, to affirm the confidence that we can have in God's will. And, and notice that these five terms are all spoken of in the past tense. That's significant. He's speaking, saying, the deal is done. It's through. It's finished. It's already accomplished. And so these terms are foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. And so when verse 29 says that God foreknew you, what it isn't is that God sat back in eternity past, looked into the future and said, man, what's going to happen? And then responded based on what he could see that was going to happen, or he responded to the person that he knew would choose him based on what he saw in history. That's not what it says. It's actually a much deeper meaning in that foreknew. That foreknew comes, stems from the same word that is know in the Bible. And when you look up that word know in the Greek, it is a deep, intimate knowing. In fact, it's the same know that is used in reference about the intimacy between a man and a woman becoming one flesh. That's what no means. That's what for no means. It's saying that God knew you deeply and intimately before the foundations of the world, before all of creation, before time even existed. He knew you. John 10, 27 through 30 says this. This is Jesus speaking. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. You see that? He, he calls you by name and says, hey, I want you. I love you. You will be mine. You will be with me forever. Not because of something that you've done or accomplished, but simply put, because God chose to love you before the foundation of time. So he foreknew you, and not only did he foreknow you, he, he predestined you. And so, so the word predestined means predetermined or preordained, set in motion. In verse 29, it says that he predetermined that the follower of Jesus, us, would become like Jesus. That he's already set it into motion that we were predestined to be like his son Jesus, to be transformed into his likeness. And catch this. What we saw in verse 28 is that God uses everything for his purpose, right? To fulfill his purpose. His purpose is for us to be transformed into Jesus like Jesus, which is beautiful because what it's saying here is that nothing, absolutely nothing, will squash that plan. That plan will be accomplished in you and in me because nothing can stop God. There's nothing in this world that's for our bad and everything will be worked out for our good. He protested you. Verse 30 says he called you. Literally, when it says that God called you, it's saying that he called you out. Meaning, he's called you out of death into life. 
So Ephesians 2 is very clear. It says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, meaning we were far off from God, incapable of loving or looking toward God until then. But it has this phrase in there, but God, but God called us out of death into life. He has called you out. He has called you from a life of hopelessness into a life of hope. And if we're called, the passage says, we are also justified. We are declared righteous in right standing before a holy God. He decrees that that's what we are judicially. Some people define it this way. Justification is, or to be justified, is just as if I had never sinned. That's what it means, is that when God looks out at you, he looks out at you the same way that he would look at Jesus, sinless, without blemish, no marks, no crooked lines. We're justified. We're we're washed by the blood of the Lamb, washed by the blood of Jesus, so that we might be in right standing. He sees you as justified. And then if we're justified, we actually have a beautiful assurance where the passage there at the end says we will be glorified. Now, I love the word glorified here, that that God speaks of it as if it's already happened, right? Like it says, you will be glorified. It says you are glorified, right? So wrap your head around this. God has set into motion in your life by foreknowing you. He predestined you, and then he he called you out of death to life. He's justified you, and 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 it's so much so undeniable, so predetermined that God can speak of your future glorification as if it's already happened. How amazing is that? Nothing can stop God's will from happening. It will be accomplished. All of creation will be restored, and we will be glorified. That's why we can place our hope in God's will, because nothing can stop it from happening. It is a sure hope that cannot be lost. Listen, from the time of the early church, so you're talking 2,000 years ago, from then to until now, there's been this weird debate about whether or not a person can lose their salvation. The Bible is unambiguous about the reality that if a person places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone, they will be saved and it can't be taken away. It is yours. It's clear. And this passage here, Romans 8, 28 through 30, is probably the clearest place in all of Scripture where that is made known to us. In three verses, Paul reveals that the unstoppable power of God to accomplish his will in us in recreating all of the universe and glorifying us will not be stopped. And so when we are experiencing the ramifications of being in a fallen world, in a sin-cursed world, When our souls are weary and groaning, our hope is not found in a change of political regime. It's not found in having more money or finding more money. It's not found in health. It's not found in any earthly endeavor you can find. Hope in current struggles is found in future reality. So if you're sitting there unsure of where you stand before God, if you're not sure if you're a person that can be listed as those who love God. Man, can I, can I speak to you for a second? There is no hope outside of these truths here. But the truth is, you can have this hope. This hope can be yours. All you have to do is acknowledge, man, God, I have sinned against you and I am hopeless without you. 
And the Bible says that if you place your faith in the fact that Jesus did, in fact, die on the cross for your sins and that God received that payment in the resurrection of Jesus, it says very clearly you will be saved and you can't lose it. You have future glory with God. And for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, that we, that we can walk securely in that but still struggle with this hope thing. How can I have hope when, when this is my reality right here, right now? Man, can I challenge you? Lean into the Spirit. Go to the source of hope. Go to the, the person that will tell you the truth and say, no, this present struggle, yes, it's real. Yes, it hurts. However, the future reality, the future glory is far beyond any struggle that you can ever experience right here and right now. It's going to get better, and beyond that, it's going to be unimaginably better. Let him steer your heart toward that. Now, if all of this stuff that we just talked about is true, what can stand against us? Nothing. The the church has the capability of being the most unstoppable force in the world because of our hope that we have in Jesus. You see, this world is not our home. This is not our final destination. As God's kids, we have a hope that's beyond this. And then we also have a mission while we're here to take the hope that we have and share with others. By no means is this a hope that challenges us to sit on our hands until the storm goes by. Let this hope be a hope that calls us to live as though we have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if God's kids would live out of their hope and not for it? Wouldn't that be a beautiful sight if we, the body of Christ, would live out of the hope that we have and not for it? In a moment, we're going to be reminding ourselves of what Christ did, reminding ourselves of where our hope comes from, the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection.